0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5, and we're looking this morning just at verses 9 and 10. We've called this sermon, How Jesus is the Solution to the Problems of Your World. Revelation chapter 5 and verses 9 and 10. Let's pray as we come now to God's Word. Our Father God, we... Pray, Lord, that your word, according to your promise, would do its work. There are so many promises in your word about your word. I think particularly of the promise that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we pray this morning that you, uh, by your spirit, sword of the Spirit is the word of God, another great promise. You, by your Spirit, will grant us faith as we hear and uh, grapple together with this very important passage and this very important theme. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. So, friends, Revelation chapter 5. And uh, from verse 9 to verse 10, we're just diving into the middle of this great part of the Bible. Let's hear God's word. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures And the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Well, we read on to verse 12, and we'll be looking at that part as well as we get into uh, the sermon this morning. We've called the sermon, How Jesus is the Solution to the problems of your world. And I'm going to give us five ways that Jesus is the solution to the problems of our world. Before I list those bullet points and walk them through with us together, as we're diving right into the book of Revelation, it's really important that we grasp how to interpret the book of Revelation as a whole, and obviously we can't spend the whole of the sermon on that because we're not doing a series in the book of Revelation. But the book of Revelation is one of those books in the Bible that is famous for people going off on all sorts of wrong rabbit trails and missing what it's really about. So we need to get that straight in our minds to begin with, and in order to do that I want to use a, a couple of illustrations from some fairly recent movies that will indicate uh, both the wrong way of doing it and the right way of doing it. Each of these is not apocalyptic. The, the uh, common way of describing the book of Revelation, and the kind of writing it is, is apocalyptic. Neither of these is formally apocalyptic, but they're close enough, uh, I think, to make the point. Uh, the first of those two movies is the movie National Treasure. Now It doesn't matter whether you've seen it or not, but you'll get the point. National Treasure is a movie that is essentially about discovering a whole series of secret codes that lead you in the end to an extremely valuable set of treasure buried deep beneath somewhere in in New York City, Manhattan, Wall Street. And there are all these codes that you have to decode in order to find your way to to the treasure. Now many people interpret the book of Revelation like that. It's a set of codes that you've got to decode. And what I want to say to us this morning, and make the case as we go through the sermon as a whole, is that is exactly the wrong way to interpret the Book of Revelation. The Book of Revelation is not a whole group of secret codes that we have to decode. It's not like national treasure. Well, here's another movie that it is a bit more like. That movie is called Night at the Museum. Night at the Museum is a uh, story about how in one of those great museums in Washington, D.C., the capital uh, city of America, uh, one of the great museums there, uh, unbeknownst to anyone apart from the night guard, every night all the statues and the, uh, the wax museum pieces, actually every night, come to life. And that is a much better picture of what the book of Revelation is trying to achieve for us. It's trying to show us that what seems unreal is actually the greatest reality. What seems dead is actually living. It's trying to pull back the curtains, or as Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 puts it, open the door into heaven to show us the heavenly realities all around us, the spiritual reality that we uh, otherwise are prone to not seeing and not understanding and are invisible to us. And if you don't believe uh, my way of uh, describing it, here are a couple of sophisticated ways. Um, From the introduction to the New Testament uh, by Carson, Moo and Morris, some great contemporary scholars, put it like this, a prophecy cast... This is what the book of Revelation is, a prophecy cast in an apocalyptic mode and written down in letter form, which is a sort of fancy way of saying it's not national treasure, it's night at the museum. Or um, uh, another scholar puts it like this, this is what the aim of the book of Revelation is, it's to show... Uh, to show us, having shown us the reality, pull back the curtain, you remember, it's in order to motivate the audience to change their behavior in light of the transcendent reality of the book's message. So it's not just an entertainment, look at at the reality, the spiritual reality, isn't that amazing? It's intended to create a life change as a part of that. Now we know that God really is sovereign, that the true story, which is hidden to our physical eyes, now revealed to us then leads to a life to a life change. And so in other words, uh, it's, uh, it's not a secret code. It's saying exactly the same as the rest of the Bible, just in a really weird way. It's putting back the curtain to show spiritual, the spiritual reality all around us. Well, here are the five ways to show that Jesus is the solution to the problems of our world first. This is how we put it into practice. First, sing joyfully, exuberantly, and voluminously, which is a fancy way of saying loudly, to Jesus. So, of course, verse 9, they sang. There's a lot of singing in the book of Revelation. And it's one of the hallmarks of someone grasping that Jesus is the solution to the problems of the world that they begin to sing. Well, obviously we see it in verse 9, but also look at verse 8. You have a Bible open, how it puts it there. When you taking the scroll, the four living creatures, we'll get to them in a moment, and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp. So there's, there's musical accompaniment too. And so it is uh, joyful, exuberant, and uh, voluminous. Or look at um, uh, verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So this is loud. Many of them. It's exuberant and voluminous. And uh, they're saying, <laughs> to put a, make it as plain as can be. Verse twelve, saying with a loud voice. Now, oh, well, verse thirteen tells us just how expansive this singing is. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea. That's a that's a pretty voluminous and exuberant kind of singing. Or verse 14, and the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, we need to quickly figure out what these four living creatures are. There's been a lot of debate on that down through the years. Uh, it, very Simply, they're referencing uh, the, uh, almost certainly the cherubim, another word uh, that's used in the Old Testament for these living creatures in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 6. That is, they are an order of being that therefore are representative of what creation should be doing when they're following God's rule. They're the living creatures. They're the creatures as it's, we are all intended to be in praise of Jesus. So they're representative of all of creation as it should be. That is giving joyful, exuberant, and voluminous uh, praise in singing to Jesus The elders uh, are the representatives of the Old Testament and the New Testament church. Uh, You can see this in chapter 4, verse 4. If you have a Bible, it says there around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. The reason why they're 24 is because the 12 uh, are representative of the Old uh, 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 Old Testament God's people, and then the 12 for the New Testament God's people. So together, the Old Testament and the New Testament church, the Old Testament and the New Testament people of God, are combined in praising Jesus, singing joyfully, exuberantly, and volumin- voluminously to Jesus. In other words, all of creation and the whole church is singing. Well, that's, a, that's pretty exuberant, joyful, and voluminous. And it is very important then that we as a church sing. Uh, There's been quite a lot of study done recently as there's been something of a new fashion for singing even outside of church circles that has captured some people's imagination. Some people have been studying the impact of singing. One study from 2014 showed that singing doesn't have perhaps a physiological, that is a physical impact on you when you sing, but psychological impact it does have. In other words, it lifts the mood, shifts you. And that is why human beings have always loved to sing. And in fact, there's a bigger impact on on The, the, the psychological impact is bigger than if, we, than if we merely listen to music. There's a bigger impact if we actually sing and you think through where do people sing outside of church? They sing perhaps Old Lang Zion on December the 31st. Or uh, there's music, isn't there, that perhaps for a certain generation of people who remember the, the, the glory days of Michael Jordan and the Bulls can hear the intro music that was always played when Michael Jordan was uh, coming into the court. As you can hear it in your minds now. Or those who love Rocky, the Rocky series can hear the, the Rocky music or uh, Coldplay, Sky for the Stars or Party in the USA, Miley Cyrus. There's, there's singing everywhere. And yet, uh, and therefore how important it is that especially we sing voluminously, exuberantly and joyfully to Jesus. Now listen, friends. I am infamous on the staff team for having a terrible voice. I'm perhaps not the worst person that, the worst voice that has ever been on the staff team. Uh, I won't tell you who I think that is, that would be unfair. <laughs> but I'm, I'm pretty close. And most of, uh, 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 certainly my forebears uh, uh, were even worse than I am. And I think things are improving generation to generation. But whether you can sing like an angel or you sing like a horse, it really doesn't make much difference. I mean, of course, we want to have those who sing like angels on the platform. Um, If we ever want to have a reverse church growth strategy, then I will do a solo each Sunday and that will take care of it. But as we sing together. We start to put into practice how Jesus is the solution to the problems in your world. It lifts you by singing together. Second, embrace the newness of Jesus' new redemptive work. So what are they singing? They're singing a new song. What does it mean when it says they sing a new song? It doesn't mean simply that... They had a new song to sing. Well, no, it doesn't mean simply that, though a new song can be an expression of what the Bible means by a new song. And we've already had a new song this morning, very wonderfully. And rightly, uh, uh, Christians have always written new songs because of wanting to sing a new song. But what is this new song? Well, the answer is that what it is is a praise for salvation fulfilled in Jesus, So from the Old Testament, the new song is a response to God's salvation. You can find this particularly in Psalm 98 in the first four verses. And then in Isaiah, book of Isaiah chapter 42, the new song is then fulfilled in the book of Matthew, that new song that is pointing to Jesus and his redemptive work. It is praise for salvation fulfilled in Jesus. That is the new song. And if we're to experience how Jesus is the solution to the problems of your world, of our world, it means embracing the newness of Jesus' new redemptive work. It helps us see how the whole Bible fits together. It's not a random set of different things and trying to figure out which bit you can accept and which bit you cannot accept. It's all leading up to this new song that then we embrace. There's a new life. And you start now new. So, this is not about whether we are positive people or negative people. Sometimes uh, it's said that there are certain kinds of people who look at life as uh, the glass is half full kind of person. They're more positive. And there are others who look at life the other way around the glass is half empty. And that can certainly impact how you feel and how you live through life. But this is not about whether you're a glass is half full or glass is half empty kind of person. Nor is this about temperament. There are all kinds of different ways of analyzing temperament that are fashionable on the internet and and, and no doubt... Uh, perhaps some of them uh, have uh, purchase and significance, and i 'm sure some are better than others and have greater psychological impact than others. But this is not about temperament. This is about new. When you get a new job and you 're excited about it it 's new it 's not about whether your glass is half full or glass is half empty or whether, what your temperament it 's new. There's a new baby in your family. It's new. It's exciting. It's new. You get a new house and you're thrilled with it. All the people you can have around and be hospitable. Of course, most of all, the new birth. Part of experiencing the way that Jesus' solution to the problems of your world is to embrace the newness of Jesus' new redemptive work. That whatever your age, young or old, you have the opportunity this morning to start anew. Now, new. But to do that, uh, third, we need to face up to the radical nature of the problems of our world so in verse 9 it says, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. The scroll or the book, uh, the same word in the Greek is translated elsewhere in Revelation as book. It's translated here as scroll, I think because it's hard to envisage how a book would have seals. So it may have been a scroll or uh, it could have, you can have a book with seals too, I suppose, but in either case, either a scroll or a book, depending on the translation you have, this scroll equates to or means God's plan of judgment and salvation, the book, the scroll. It goes all the way back to uh, Moses in uh, Exodus chapter 32 where Moses stands in between God's judgment on his sinning people and intercedes for them, and God talks about him having a book and whose names are in the book, that is the book of salvation, who's in and who is out. The same is referenced in Daniel chapter 7, and then again at the end of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, and of course towards the end of Revelation chapter 20. God's plan of judgment and salvation. Listen, many people today are not facing up to the radical nature of the problems of our world. And of course, if we have a wrong diagnosis, we'll have a wrong remedy. We'll only treat the symptoms, we won't solve the problem. And the ways that people are looking at the problems of our world today tend to fall into two, for, simplistic, for simplicity's sake, two sets of ways of looking at it. One way of looking at the problems of our world that's very common today is to say that it's all about the system, the structure of society. Uh, and that's what's wrong with the world. The system is wrong. The social um, structure of the way that uh, the world in which we live is ordered, is all wrong. It's one very common way of looking at the world. a number of different uh, contemporary words used for that, terms used for that, but essentially what people are saying is what's wrong is the system, it's biased, it's problematic, it needs to be fixed, the system needs to be changed. That's what's wrong with the world, one very common way of looking at the world today. Another common way of looking at the world is to say, no, it's not the system, it's not the social structure, Instead, it's the individual. That's what's wrong with the world. Uh, Individuals need to make the right choice. Uh, And it can be the problem in our psychology, various childhood experiences we have, or, or, or what have you. But basically, there are two different ways of looking at the problems of the world. Is it the system, the social structure, or is it the individual that is the cause of the problem? Of course, without any doubt... We live in an imperfect world. Without any doubt, there are problems with our system, and each of us as individuals have our own set of problems, without any doubt. So it's not like there's nothing to that, but the Bible would say both those things are symptoms. They're not, if we, if we land with either of those two, we're not facing up to the real nature, the, rad, the radical nature of our, of our real problem. What is the real Problem. No one can open the scroll. In other words, no one can solve the problem of God's righteous judgment. That's the problem. Not the society and not the individual. The problem is no one can open the scroll. Who is there can solve the problem of God's righteous judgment. I was thinking about trying to bring this to life for us today, it struck me as ironic that that these days we are far more likely to hear the word hell outside the church than inside the church. And we're far more likely to hear, damn it, or something outside the church, than damned. And of course, what that means is, uh, and it's that, that we need to face up to the radical nature of the problems of our world. Who can open the scroll? Who can solve the problem of God's righteous judgment? Which leads us then to the fourth bullet point this morning. Weigh up Jesus as supremely, and uniquely valuable. And I use the metaphor of weigh here because underneath the word worthy is a picture of weight, the value being given to Jesus. He's been weighed as valuable. So weigh up Jesus as supremely and uniquely. Uh, valuable. And this is emphasized for us in at least three ways here. Uh, verse 9, they sang new songs saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? For you were slain. Uh, and the slain nature of Jesus, that he is slaughtered, of course re- referencing his death on the cross, goes back to Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6. And as uh, Pastor Josh Maurer prayed earlier in the service. Uh, without the shedding of blood, there's no remittance of sins. Well, he is slain and therefore supremely and uniquely valuable. But also, uh, he is worthy. And that, the way that he's praised as worthy here indicates that the Lamb, that is Jesus, is God. So chapter 4, verse 11, it says, uh, uh, Worthy are you... Our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power. And then we see in chapter 5 verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever, mirroring the language. In other words, the book of Revelation is telling us that the Lamb is God, supremely and uniquely Valuable, he's slain, he's worthy, that is, he's God. And then he's supremely uniquely valuable because only in him can the problems of the whole earth be solved. Um, Verse 10, you've made them a king, uh, sorry, verse 9. By your blood you ransomed people for God, where? From every tribe and language and people and nation. The from there, uh, meaning all without distinction, not meaning all without exception, but it is global. Every tribe and language and people and nation. So Way Up Jesus is supreme, uniquely valuable because he's slain, because he's worthy of that, he's, he's God, and because he, his, his redemption is all without distinction from every tribe and nation and language. Well, how do we diagnose or evidence where we are what we are truly weighing up as valuable. I like to think of uh, a diagnostic tool I call C3, three ways that we show where we're truly valuing, what we're truly valuing. Uh, The first C is career. The way we're structuring our career, whether that's at home or at work, shows what we truly value. Is our career structured around Jesus as supreme, uniquely valuable or not? Career, crisis. Nothing shows what we truly value better than a really good crisis. What we truly value, is it Jesus? And then the third of these three C's is cave. (laughs) I think when we get back to our cave, our home, it shows how we use our time there and what we do there what we weigh up as supremely and uniquely valuable. Here then comes the fifth and final way uh, for Jesus to be the solution to the problems of your world. Build a meaningful life by structuring your days and years, however many God gives you around the purpose of the advance of God's international kingdom. And I want you to notice here particularly the way this is put in verse 10. It says, You have made them, so this is something that has been done, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. That is, if we're following Jesus, who we are. We are a kingdom. We're under God's rule in his kingdom and we're priests that is we have access to God directly through faith in Jesus and we have a priestly role of bringing other people to God through faith in Jesus so you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign that's still to come they shall reign on the earth so we partly reign now and we will fully reign then. Now, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, "All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations." That is you are a kingdom, Jesus has all authority. Now go and fulfill your priestly role. That is with access to God through faith in Jesus, lead other people to come to faith in him, uh, come to God through faith in Jesus as well. That's now. You are a kingdom and priests. Then, uh, the end of the book of Revelation. Now, we have a mission. We'll be thinking next week and with a new series next week about our mission. We have a mission now, all of us who are following Jesus. But we also have purpose then. We have a trajectory. We know where it's going. And therefore, it impacts how we live with perseverance. We have status. We're a kingdom and priests. And we have a trajectory. If we spend our days and our years thinking about ourselves, it will inevitably lead to misery. Inevitably. Instead, Build a meaningful life by structuring your days and your years around the purpose of the advance of God's international kingdom. Well, how do we uh, bring this to a close? Let me close then with an imaginary individual. It's an identikit person, not a real person. An imaginary individual, and you could call him Brian or Bill or Jane or whatever you like, but an imaginary individual say Brian This individual is 22 years old. He's very positive, very passionate, like a lot of uh, people in their 20s these days. Positive, passionate. But when he looks around, he sees so many problems in the world. Ukraine The Middle East, the political chaos of America, perhaps chaos is too strong a word, I don't know, political something in America. So there's Brian, he's 22, he's positive, he's passionate, but he sees so many problems and it leads him to cynicism or checking out. But now he understands the radical root of those problems. Who will open the scroll? That's the problem. Not society and not the individual. Not ultimately. Those are merely symptoms. And now he sees Jesus as supremely and uniquely valuable because he and he alone can open the scroll. For he was slain, he is God, and his sacrifice is for all nations. Well, now Brian can build a meaningful life. He has something to do now. He has a mission, and we'll look more about that in the next few weeks as we begin a new series next Sunday. He has purpose a trajectory. How does he start? He starts by taking a simple step. Coming to Jesus, of course, in faith, and then following his word and his will to fix the thing in his life that needs to be fixed right now, however small it may be, but to start building a life of significance and meaning around the advance of God's international kingdom. Well, may that be true for all of us. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we do uh, thank you that you uh, have a way of solving the problems of our world. Uh, We certainly know, Lord, that these days there seem to be many of them. We haven't even mentioned all the church chaos that there is across the Western world at the moment. But uh, we've uh, mentioned the, the global military wars and political divisions of our society Individuals feeling sad and disengaged from life. (laughs) Lord, there are many problems. And yet, Lord, if we pay close attention to your word, we realize these are merely symptomatic of the real radical nature of the problem. That is, we live in a world under the judgment of God. And it appears, as we look around, there's no one to open the scroll. And yet here he is, the Lamb, who was slain. God incarnate himself for all nations, across all tribal and linguistic barriers. And he is worthy. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us, therefore, to, yes, sing voluminously, exuberantly, joyfully to him as worthy. And to have our lives transformed by this revelation of the true spiritual reality that Jesus is the solution. And to live in the light of that, we pray, in that name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.